I am here today because it, it, was, it is with great sadness that I inform you of my resignation from Green Bay Public Schools. Washington has been in a downward spiral for a long time, but has been deteriorating rapidly over the past five years and rapidly during this school year. I fear for my safety every day. I am equally afraid for the safety of my colleagues and most importantly, my students. We are in danger every day when we show up to our school. The Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. I am Dr. David Perodin, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. Today, insider truth about student discipline abeyance agreements. What is an abeyance agreement? Well, first off, it, it goes by a lot of different names. It could be a pre-expulsion agreement or a first offenders program. But it is, it's adapted from the U.S. legal system. It's actually not a part of education law. So in the legal system, a plea in abeyance is an agreement that allows the court to dismiss your violation upon completion of certain criteria. This agreement can only be done at the recommendation of a prosecutor. So what that means is, okay, we won't enforce the, the consequence of this, whether it be a fine, whether it could be community service, days in jail, who knows? We're not going to enforce that as long as you meet these conditions. You won't have another run-in with the law. You'll comply with um, going to treatment, whatever it might be. But in that whole time when you are needing to comply with these um, parameters, right? You, if you violate that, then that abeyance is out the window and that sentence goes into effect. So we hear about these, these plea bargains. It's very common in legal system. Now, I, would, I don't want to conflate these with education um, to make it sound like you know, we're sentencing students, things like that. We're not. But I want you to know that the term abeyance agreement is adopted and adapted from the legal system, not from education policy. In public schools, an abeyance contract sets forth the conditions under which the school agrees to not impose a suspension or it could be an expulsion. I will detail that out in a little bit so you understand when a student enters into an abeyance agreement what that really means. So in 2009 the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction released a guidance document on had districts that had successfully 
use the bands agreements to decrease suspensions, increase enrollment, increase academic performance of students. So these were success stories. If you're watching the video, I'll have some overlays so you can reference out the exact document. Um, I'll also put that in the official blog post on safetyphd.com. So in 2009, though, the Green Bay School District was featured in this report, and it looked back earlier years, 2001, 2002, of the Green Bay School District utilizing an advanced option for students and the success of that. So I'm going to read a small excerpt from that 2009 Wisconsin Department of Public Construction document, which is on the website today, on their website here in 2019. Although, right, it was written 10 years ago. It referenced data that was almost 10 years before that. But the Green Bay School District has developed an advance option for students who commit an expellable offense. The student and parents agree to a set of specifications in order that the expulsion be held in abeyance, including counseling from an outside agency, with student follow-up on all recommendations of the counseling and participating in the district's alternative education program. This program is designed to meet the student's needs based upon his or her behavioral history. The goal of the program is to provide a structured, supportive, and therapeutic environment, allowing the student to acquire the skills necessary to successfully return to the school setting. Okay. So there's some assumptions in their successfully returned to the school setting that the student would be placed at an off-site program or alternative, which doesn't happen as much today as it might have happened in 2009. Um, so the intro to this show, we heard from a teacher, a star teacher in Green Bay at a me uh, board meeting in 2017, rendering her resignation because of school violence happening at the school where she taught. So we we can look at this. Okay, this came out in 2009, looked at abeyance practices in Green Bay. Eight years later, one of their star teachers is reporting significant um, behavioral safety concerns at a school. Now, is this all causal and, and linked? You know, not necessarily, but also it, I'm not saying that these items aren't related. It's just for discussion to look at all of these pieces in the whole mosaic. So the program is designed to meet the student's needs based upon his or her behavioral history. That's, that's a fascinating statement because the behavioral history wouldn't include a previous abeyance agreement because an abeyance agreement expires. It maybe lasts a semester, it expires and once it's done, it's done. It's not on the books anywhere. It doesn't become a student record. It's not reported to the state or feds. So when you look at behavioral history, one of the pieces missing from the behavioral history could be a prior abeyance agreement. Seems like there's a big hole in that. So an abeyance agreement, when do these come into play? Usually first time offenses, student uh, with, with drugs or alcohol, student pulls a fire alarm, fights, vandalism, damage to school property, um, vaping, uh, fighting. One area that it typically doesn't apply is for the possession of firearms. So you don't have an abeyance agreement if you've brought a firearm or a destructive device to school. But 
These abeyance agreements do come into play for a lot of other conditions. Right now, I want you to listen to this additional clip from the Green Bay teacher as she talks about the conditions in her school. We need you to follow the student handbook that you have created. Section 443.7 of the student handbook policy states that students who commit aggressive or violent behavior shall be required to seek an initial screening and ongoing counseling and provide written evidence of this counseling to the principal within one month of their offense. Simply following through with that one rule would be a huge start to making positive change for us. Enforcing the following policy in the handbook for students with subsequent violent violations would be another way for you to make positive change for us. Start this long-term change process by committing to following through with the consequences that you already have. We need swift action from downtown and we need a no tolerance policy for this abusive behavior in our school. So why do we have abeyance agreements? Well, there's much pressure to decrease suspensions and also decrease expulsions. In the state of Oregon, in 2014, 15 House Bill 2192 uh, was passed specific to school discipline. I'm going to read a few excerpts from that. You can see where this bill was going as far as wanting schools to decrease suspensions. This isn't uncommon to what other states have done or are doing. House Bill 2192 revises Oregon's school discipline code and requires school boards and districts to develop and implement policies and practices that focus on reducing unnecessary suspensions and expulsions. Okay. The law places limits on expulsions and removes the mandatory expulsion language regarding weapons. What they've so what they've done here, okay. Implement policies and practices that focus on reducing unnecessary suspension. What's an unnecessary suspension? Very subjective, right? You'd have the discretion of the administrator. Does this mean that previously people were um, uh, being very careless with suspensions? Um, I, I don't, I, you know, when you see language like that, it, it means that the discretion, the, the lawmakers are looking at this and saying, the schools were not properly exercising discretion. We had unnecessary suspensions because right here, in the summary of the bill, it says the focus is on reducing unnecessary suspensions and expulsions. And then also the law places limits on expulsions and removes the mandatory expulsion language regarding weapons. And it changes it to firearms. Okay. So instead of a weapon, so no, no longer is it a knife. If a student was using a baseball bat, um, something improvised to, to bring harm, those no longer fall within this expulsion language of weapons. So basically, if you bring a firearm to school or a device that can be detonated, yes, then you will be going to expulsion. Um, but if you bring a knife to school, probably not. Okay. Some other key provisions of this bill. Okay. Removes mandatory expulsion or zero tolerance language regarding weapons. Okay. So again, it used to be zero tolerance. You brought a, a what was determined a weapon. We just talked about that. Um, baseball bat, knife, whatever. That that was an automatic. Okay, automatic that you're 
maybe suspend it 10 days and then you're going before the school board for expulsion, automatic, right? Not that way anymore. If it's a firearm, yes, otherwise, no. Limits expulsions to the following circumstances. For conduct that poses a threat to the health or safety of students or school employees, when other strategies to change student conduct have been ineffective, or when the expulsion is required by law. So at last when required by law, um, that would be if the student has a firearm that they bring on to campus, right? The first one, for conduct that poses a threat to the health or safety of students or school employees, again, subjective. Um, that needs discretion. Is it one person? Is it the administrator making that determination? Is it a school threat assessment team? Um, that's again, gets very murky when language like this comes into play, but it's designed to be that way. Um, the, it's designed to give the district options, including an abeyance agreement. When other strategies to change student conduct have been effective. Other strategies, like what? <laughs> if the student has a disability in an IEP, Individualized Education Plan, there might be strategies to address behavior if it's identified as, as a disability area, teaching replacement behaviors. But other strategies to change student conduct. I don't know exactly what that means. Um, could it mean that you have incentive programs in place for your students if a student doesn't have a tardy or a detention or a suspension, then they get entered into a drawing? I saw that once in, in a district and uh, they had a drawing for a, a vehicle, right? If you have these conditions of uh, attendance, not violating student conduct and whatever. And so... I think it was like a used vehicle for $20,000 or something. Might sound ridiculous on the surface, but if you actually broke it down, the amount of time the district was spending on um, investigating violations of code of conduct, tracking down students that weren't in school, meetings, outside agencies, um, working with lawyers, it far exceeded like this $20,000. So actually, um, this worked. Not saying I would recommend this. I'm just saying it worked in that district as a way to change student conduct. But we see that we have very subjective or interpretive language in this bill, not uncommon to other bills, not uncommon to federal guidance under the Obama administration, um, largely urging districts to decrease student suspensions. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast.
purpose of an abeyance agreement. So I was a school administrator, special education director for a dozen years. I'm going to speak to you from my experiences also as a university instructor working with aspiring educational leaders, superintendents, special education directors, what they're telling me, also what I've learned, how I'm informed from my consulting. So here is the company line on an abeyance agreement, okay? The company line from the school is, it is a second chance for the student. We don't want whatever offense, whatever violation of code of conduct to stay on the student's record. So we are going to put this agreement together and it will have a sunset date on it. And then after that, it will not be part of the record. It doesn't get reported anywhere. So it's a second chance. That's that's the company line. But there are some implicit reasons why an abeyance agreement is attractive to a school district. These are not something that you will find in any school document. I've done a search, abeyance agreement plus school, many uh, returns on, on that search. But what I'm going to tell you, the, these these don't show up and they're they're very relevant. It's very honest of what I'm what I'm sharing here. So the reason schools do uh, an abeyance agreement, the purpose, I guess, is it well, it has a conclusive um, action to an investigation. What I mean by that is schools investigate a violation of code of conduct. A student had brought drugs, had uh, gotten into a fight, had viewed something online that they shouldn't have viewed. So if you investigate, you do your due diligence in your investigation, you have to have some end to that, right? You just can't investigate, get the information, and then not do anything. So typically that's where you would investigate and then it would come into a suspension. It might come into some type of restorative practice for the, the student, something that would be the next step. Well, when suspensions are really no longer on the table, we just heard about that in Oregon law, right? That's really sending the message of saying, stop, suspending. Okay. Be, be honest about it. Um, so when that's off the table and you do the investigation, then you're kind of left with, well, what do I do now? Well, you can use an abeyance agreement. It ties up the loose end. Also, this avoids creating a reportable document or a data point that gets reported. Suspensions are reported locally. They're reported to the state department of public instruction, also to the feds. And the state and the feds um, don't look favorably upon suspensions. If you hit a certain threshold of suspensions, uh, there will be consequences, corrective action plans, they're called, which come down to your district. Schools have report cards now. Parents shop around for districts versus uh, via open enrollment. If they notice that your district has higher suspension numbers than another district, um, that's not going to be as favorable for the appeal of your, your district. So there are many reasons to keep this, this image of, of the district as one of not having, not having suspensions. Um, so it, it, you can kind of address the suspension issue uh, of having some consequence without using a suspension by using this abeyance agreement. Again, it doesn't get reported anywhere. So you can't go and say, how many abeyance agreements did you have this year? No one has to tell you. No one has to report that out. 
And if you look at how many abeyance agreements have we had in the last three years, what's the trend with this? You'll, you won't know because it's not reportable data and it sunsets, sunsets and it's expunged from records. For students with disabilities who violate code of conduct, there might be a convening of the IEP team, an individualized education team, which involves several staff from the district, the parents, possibly advocates, discussions of whether or not the violation was due to the student's IEP plan not being appropriately implemented, or was the violation um, substantially linked or connected to the student's disability. So this happens through a process under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. I know this well. I participated in a hundred manifestations, if not more. I participated in a hundred abeyance agreement meetings, if not more. But you can avoid having to convene an IEP team if you opt instead to offer the parent the abeyance agreement as the first step. Now, there will be people who listen to this and say, no, you still have to do both. And, and you know, that actually the IP process should happen first, Dave. And okay, I know that, right? I, I know that. I'm telling you, though, this is what schools do. Okay. There are exceptions to this, but if you're using an abeyance agreement, an abeyance agreement is often done before an IEP meeting. And if the abeyance agreement is accepted, Oftentimes, there is not an IEP meeting. Also, the abeyance agreement shields the school board from a confrontational expulsion hearing. Expulsion hearings take a week to prepare for. Um, I, I, it's, a, it's a thick file. It's, it's abrasive. Um, a, the parent comes before the board, the, the student, you know, they're arguing why uh, they shouldn't be expelled from from the school, um, you know, targeting the the process, the investigation, biases in the school. That all might, you know, be be accurate to some level. But as a school board, these are long meetings. They're contentious. They're uncomfortable. And once you go through a few of these in a year, you're likely telling your superintendent and your principals, let's come up with something else. How about this pre-expulsion process? which the DPI writes about in their 2009 document and this abeyance agreement. This sounds good. Let's get our lawyer on board, see if we have an option so we don't have to come to this point. Because I can tell you, school boards do not, do not at all enjoy this process of an expulsion hearing. Okay, they do not. So what's in an abeyance agreement? First of all, these aren't long agreements. I found many on um, through Google search. They're a page. Now, typically ones that I would I would be involved on, maybe two, three pages, but still pretty short and, and very scripted, concise documents. Um, again, these are from the legal world, not from the education world. And they're very much represented um, in that way of, if, you know, do this by this time, okay, and not open for discussion and negotiation. But here, here's, what, here's what we'll be in. Um, typically, so imagine this document, the student has um, violated the school um, code of conduct for, you know, fighting. And there could be a suspension 
or maybe you know there there have been some other events in the students past with behavior if they've been documented right could have been so significant that there's even a consideration maybe we need to go to expulsion but here's what's in the document one there's a time period so it will say after and typically it's a semester right typically after the semester if the student has not violated this the code of conduct has has basically done everything we're going to lay out here then the abeyance agreement expires and if something happens in the future this 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 consequence which could be implemented of the suspension or going to expulsion that's no longer there it would be determined per the new incident um, all over again you could have another abeyance agreement hypothetically right um so it's a time period, basically saying, follow the rules for a semester, and then this will sunset. During the time the agreement is in effect. So this is in most agreements. Conditions like this. Okay, The student will only be absent for a personal illness, and their parent will call the school to notify if the student isn't going to be there. All right, Will abide by the school's student code of conduct will give his or her best effort in all subjects every day. That's actually a statement in abeyance agreements. By executing this agreement, the undersigned acknowledges that they voluntarily and without undue influence agree to waive the right to appeal. Voluntarily? Really? You're in a room, likely with a lawyer, okay, the school's lawyer, if not uh, one of the high-ranking administrators. Not sure how voluntary this really is, but okay, let's go along with it for what it says in most of these agreements. Waive their right to appeal. So basically, you agree to this. You then are not going to challenge the decision of the school, which really is saying we're just going to idle this. We're going to put this in a parking lot um, and move on. So, wow. I, I've I've also seen these agreements include that the student will uh, meet with either a school counselor a set number of times or have an evaluation from an outside counselor. That information then would be shared with the school, um, and there could be community service. Those are those are rare though, and if you're saying the child needs to meet with their doctor or outside counselor, what type of document are you getting back? A must-read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, A brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. I don't know one counselor or one doctor for any student who was willing to write this student, I deem that this student will be safe to 
himself and safety others in the school setting. I know nobody who has written that. Um, it's just like if someone sold you a car, right? And they said, I, I'm guaranteeing that this car will, will never be in an accident due to um, some fault of, of the vehicle. Because you can't do that. You, it's, it's absolutely absurd to make those condition statements when you have no control over the fact that there could be some circumstance when this could happen. So these are, these are really, um, that, that's all there is, right? So only will not be absent except for illness. We'll follow the school code of conduct. We'll give best effort. So those are just things like you do normally, right? You don't really need to have that in a document. That's what you would just do. So it's a low bar, right? It's a low threshold and you need to know that. Um, and, and when you say give his or her best effort, Best effort? What does that mean? That's subjective in all subjects every day. That's kind of crazy, too. What if the student has 40 awesome days and then the 41st day is just bad? It's just wonky. Something's wrong. Whatever it is, the stars crossed and, and stuff like that. And it was just a bad day for the student. And then 40, day 42 is, is good again. Well, you wouldn't look at the student and say, you know, everything just fell apart. Like now everything's gone because you had this, this one day where you weren't giving your best effort. So it, this is, it, this is designed. I think you can see it's designed. So in most cases, the student will meet these requirements because they're really low. And then the advance agreement expires and people move on, right? People don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Parents, they're, they're nervous about this. Any interactions you have with the school that wears you down. Parents tell me this all the time um, when, they're, when they're working with schools. You know, I, 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 I want to have discussions with my school, David, about how my child with autism um, receives safety instruction. But, you know, after the second, third, fourth meeting, it just becomes, becomes tiresome. And there's this positionality of the power of the school. And also the school wants to move on from this. They don't want to perpetually have this investigation go on. So again, we have a low threshold on these. Let's look at accountability, all right? So we just have these conditions that you have to meet. So who is monitoring monitoring this, right? That the student's giving best effort. Probably nobody. Uh, no one is, is charting daily. I can tell you, I'd be stunned if anyone could present it and say, said, um, okay, during the days that the student was under the expulsion or not expulsion, the abeyance agreement, um, here is their level of effort for every day on a Likert scale of one to 10. So that doesn't exist. Like nobody does that. So there isn't much accountability. Ultimately, probably the principal. Principal might say, counselor, when we have students on abeyance agreements, um, it's your job to, to keep track of them, I guess. At least let us know um, if, if something else happens that is a violation of code of conduct. If they do have an abeyance agreement, then we'd have to look at maybe uh, imposing the consequences that were held in abeyance. But otherwise, let us know when it expires. It's off the book books. Um, or else, if the student has a disability, the special education case manager, but there isn't intense oversight on this. Abeyance agreements are often 
expunged after expired. I've said this before, but it's very important because when they are expunged, they're nowhere, okay? There isn't a record um, that's created in the student's file saying the student had an abeyance agreement. Not even that the abeyance agreement is there, okay? Just saying that the student has an abeyance agreement. This is interesting because often in student files, if a student moves to another district, for example, there there will be a letter, some statement saying this student had medical records which were released released to the school. Um, you know, whatever it could be, if it was you know medical, you know asthma, if it was outside assessment for um, autism, whatever it would be, a district cannot re-release information that had been released to it, but it can make the receiver of of the the student you know such as another district aware that hey there there were some files so they could ask the parent they could ask if it's an adult student um, could you give us a release of information so we could obtain these these documents but actually but none of that see exists with the abeyance agreement like it's this is gone this is the vanishing act and it's made to be that way because it doesn't show up as a suspension would or as an expulsion anywhere. So it's this, again, it's this clean slate theory for the student, a clean slate, but also for the school um, that this event largely never happened. And we have administrator turnover about every two years. We have um, students moving in and out of schools. So to try to get a longitudinal record of what's happening in a school for behavior, incidents, responses from administration, if there's certain um, grade levels or there's certain individuals um, where we have more uh, suspensions related to certain teachers, certain grade levels, certain classes, whatever, all of these things we probably want to know, right? That's the purpose of having data is to analyze data, discover patterns, inform your systems, improve your systems. That's gone gone with abeyance agreements. Oh my goodness. So let's move on. Incentives to enter into an abeyance agreement. So why do people, why do people use these? Okay. Again, keeps the district's actions off the books, off the books. Has a FERPA shield, which is a student privacy law um, has that shield also. So if I'm requesting from the district, how many students had abeyance agreements last year? How many were for violation of, of alcohol or, or you know, uh, drug uh, code of conduct? Um, the, the district doesn't have to tell me. They won't tell me. And they probably don't have the data. They might have pieces of it you know, whatever is expired and eventually they'll get rid of these, you know, they'll, they'll shred these, these abeyance agreements. So they just won't be there. So again, it's, it's all off the books. If a student has a disability or they might have a disability that hasn't been diagnosed, um, this is a way to work around convening that IEP team meeting. If you convene the meeting, you also need to consider the services that the student receives and placement. Now, those can be contentious discussions because maybe the services should include that the student is meeting with a, a uh, counselor specific to um, 
drugs or, or alcohol. Maybe the school doesn't have um, someone that could do that. There would need to be a contract with an outside service provider. So who's going to pay for that? Who's going to coordinate that? So that comes into play. Placement. Maybe the school doesn't have the, the, the environment, the services to meet the needs of the student. Maybe it needs to be a part day treatment program. Maybe it needs to be um, you know, something that has a mental health component that's provided um, in a community-based setting. Those are all appropriate, necessary discussions in the IEP under the individual, individ, uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. But they can introduce liabilities to the district, fiscal liabilities, and then also having to generate agreements, memorandum of understanding with third-party providers, just saying in a in a district that has a lot of resources available to it, typically also an urban district, those discussions are more likely to happen if you are a rural district. Now in Wisconsin, we know that if we take the state and draw a line through the center of the state, so we have northern Wisconsin, southern Wisconsin, in the northern part of the state, we have very few child psychiatrists, right? And we also have um, uh, we don't have the infrastructure. We have more as far as roads to get places, um, more turnover in staff, and also more inclement weather. I mean, it's not uncommon in northern Wisconsin to have snowstorms in May and also October. So there's just all of these factors that come in where it's like we could do the IP team that might lead us down a rabbit hole and commit us to a lot of things that we might not be able to fulfill because of it's just not here for us. So the abeyance agreement could be a way to step around that. Again, I'm not telling you that this is a best practice. I'm telling you this is a growing, more common practice. And it's not new anymore. It's been around since I have been, um, had been in administration from 2002 onward. But um, right now, when I am instructing new administrators, first year administrators, they know all of this stuff. Like this has been in place when they were a teacher, probably, you know, since they've come out. Now, this isn't something, though, that's taught, right? We don't teach about abeyance agreements in any university program, I teach at the university level, because it's not part of education policy. It's not part of education law. This is a practice that just gets adopted, adapted from the, the legal um, sector, which also brings in questions of really how appropriate is this and, and what's the, the constitutional compliance of this? But I don't know. Um, other incentives, it's simple and quick. Remember, you can do a one-page document. It's not a discussion. It's put together ahead of time. Um, typically, the school's legal counsel will, will have some say on putting that together or be at the meeting. And it's basically saying, here it is. Again, here's the conditions. You can read through quick. Um, do you have any questions? And if not, student signs, parent signs, it's done. Simple and quick. And for the most part, parents go along with it. Parents go along with the abeyance agreement. I'm going to talk about why they do that. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast. 
with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. So, we have two camps, okay? We have parents who are going to be in in Camp A and parents who are going to be in Camp B, okay? And both of these camps have very different positions when it comes to the abeyance agreement, Um, but both of them will likely agree to it. Okay, let's go to Camp A. So the parents in Camp A are parents who are intimidated by the school. It's called positionality, meaning let's look at the school. It's a multi-million dollar organization, right? Huge payrolls um, and, you know, it's not uncommon for like a high school to be $50 million or more. So you, you look at these massive structures, it's imposing. You meet with a principal, principal has advanced degrees hanging on a wall. Um, typically there's initials after the name. So it's it's a shift of power, right? It seems like the power is with the institution. Also the school district taxes you. So when you get your tax bill, You can't go and say, I'm not going to pay this part that the district has assessed to my property. No, you have to pay that, right? And what happens if you don't? Right, they'll take your property. So there's a lot of power inherent into the school. So parents are intimidated by schools. And I have worked with parents who are educators, uh, professional degrees. You would think that would bring some awareness into the system, into due process. No, those folks are just as scared of interacting with the school as as someone that doesn't have um, that, I guess, level of of education, kind of maybe employment, um, you know, they're they're a manager in their employment. They know how that works or dealing with conflict. It It doesn't transfer well into the school setting. People are very nervous. They'll tell me, Dave, I didn't sleep the night before this. And I just kept writing and, and, and taking notes. I'm so worried. And should I record this or should I not record this? Um, and, uh, you know, what if they do this? And I'm just not sure. And what if there's another meeting and I just need this to get over for me and, and for my, my kid? So this is where they're coming from. That's Camp A. Okay. So when Camp A comes into the meeting and... So I'll talk about meetings I was in. It was typically, I was there as a director of special education, pupil services. The principal was there or assistant principal. Often we had legal counsel there. Now we lived, not lived, but the district was close to legal counsel. So for legal counsel to be there was like a 10 minute drive. This might not always be the case, but if it's not the case, 
then I would say, or the superintendent would say, we have we have consulted with legal counsel on this, and this is what legal is telling us. So by saying that, you're bringing legal into the room, into the discussion. It's very powerful also, right? Positionality, because people think if you know, lawyers involved, that's probably not good, right? So this, this group of eight people intimidated by the school, the school comes out and says, listen, um, here's the abeyance agreement, and someone's going to be the play the good cop, bad cop. That's going to happen. So it could be if the lawyer is there, the lawyer could say, the school could do this. They could file the handbook, go to suspension, expulsion. Um, but the principal is wanting to offer this abeyance agreement. And here's what the abeyance agreement is. You follow these conditions and then it, it sunsets over time. That will be it. We won't have additional consequences for this violation of code of conduct. So that sounds pretty good, right? So you're getting you're getting a deal from the principal in the, this case. This is the good cop, bad cop. Lawyers, lawyers, bad cop could do all of this stuff. Principals keeping the relationship. No, we're, we're going to offer. You know, we're going to we're we're going to give a second chance. We're going to offer a clean slate through this abeyance agreement. So it's really a gift, and that's how parents perceive it who are intimidated by the school. Thank you so much for giving my kid a second chance. Thank you for working with me. Um, yes, we'll sign it. Um, and then it's the end of the meetings. People can move on. Okay, that's that's camp A, right? So I just talked about how the meeting goes for the people in camp A. So I, about half the people are in camp A. Um, the other people are over here in camp B. Now the meeting goes the same way, whether you're in camp A or camp B. The camp B people come in uh, puffing up their chest and, and, and saying, I am going to do a complaint campaign. I will go on 10 different social media sites and write about how this is unjust for my child and, and how there's systemic um, problems going on in the, in the district. I will be at board meetings. We will have additional meetings. If my child has a, a disability, we will convene the IEP meeting. I will have an advocate there. This will be uncomfortable for you, district. Okay, so that is a parent who is is coming forward and really exerting their 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 presence onto the district. Now the part is the the district, the school staff. That doesn't really matter to them if you're in Camp A or Camp B. Um, they just want you to agree to the abeyance agreement, right? So they'll go through the same thing with the parents in Camp B who are coming real powerful, you know, puffed up at this meeting. And, and uh, same thing, lawyer would say, you know, this district could do this, but they're going to offer this. But here's the difference. In Camp B, the parent is perceiving, oh, yeah, you're offering the abeyance agreement. You're offering that because I've earned that. I've forced you into the corner where you need to compromise. And the abeyance agreement is the compromise. So the parent feels like they've won, right? Like they have, they've overpowered the district. But really, again, it's the same narrative that has been spoken about the abeyance agreement. And in the end, the parent signs the agreement. So those are the two reasons why it's really effective because most parents go into one of two camps and you'll rarely, but this does happen, you'll have a parent who'll say, I'm not going to agree to an abeyance agreement. We need to convene the IPT meeting or you know, they'll say, we want this discipline measure to happen, but th those just aren't 
common. Most of the time, and I would say 75% of the time, the parent will agree to the abeyance agreement. A must read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, a brave demonstration of speaking truth to power, School of Errors rips the lid off the billion dollar school safety industry. Using real world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. So wrapping up, talking about the shortcomings of an abeyance agreement. So I'm clearly stating that I am not an advocate of an abeyance agreement. I don't feel that they should be utilized in schools. Um, I do believe that they are being used more often. I also do believe that as suspensions decrease, as states tell their educators do not suspend students, districts are saying, okay, we won't suspend, but here's what we're going to do, and that often is using the abeyance agreement. So I believe we should have clear reporting on abeyance agreement, just like we did for suspensions. If there is an abeyance agreement put into place, it should be reported how long it was in place, what the conditions were, how it was assessed, um, what the infraction was, what the learning objectives from the abeyance agreement were, not that you would just simply follow the rules and try hard. Um, so, I would say we need accountability and transparency with abeyance agreements, which we completely don't have now. So let's just bring them to the same standard that we had at least for suspensions. So I just think it's changing one thing for another. We're, we're taking suspensions and saying, you really can't do that anymore. We don't want you to do that. Okay, so we're getting rid of that. We're using abeyance agreements. Suspensions, you had to report. Abeyance agreements, you don't. So districts, the suspension data looks great. And for state data, it looks phenomenal. States have five years of decreasing suspension data for everyone. But is behavior better? Is student discipline better? Student um, achievement better? And those are the questions you have to ask. And usually the answer to that is no. Um, for example, in Wisconsin, Wisconsin has cheered about declining numbers for student suspensions statewide for all students, okay, students with disabilities, students without um, African-American students, white students, students in poverty, students non poverty, that all, all these numbers are dropping, that this is a great thing, okay? But also we know through the national report card that Wisconsin's achievement gap between African-American students and white students is the largest gap in the nation. And it's been that way for 10 years. Also over these 10 years, suspensions now have dropped. So suspensions have dropped, we would 
expect, right, that behavior is getting better, student needs are being met, that if we did have achievement gaps, which we have, that they would at least start to decrease. These, these gaps wouldn't be as, as prevalent, and that's not happening. So discipline doesn't seem to be the factor. The suspensions don't seem to be the factor because those are getting better as far as they're not the numbers. There aren't as many. Let's put it that way. So shortcomings. One, there's no oversight of an abeyance agreement. There's no oversight. Again, we have a low threshold for fulfilling the agreement. Again, attend school, try hard. That is actually the language that we have in some of these agreements. We have no learning objectives. Um, also, FERPA, the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act, it's a federal law, protects these student records. Okay, what, so this abeyance agreement, it protects the abeyance agreement while it exists. So we, if there's a request, again, how many abeyance agreements, what were the violations for? I mean, not that you, you would even get to student information that you, you could identify student name, you could aggregate all of this and at least have some sense of what's happening. But no, because FERPA immediately wraps all of these in, in this protective shell and you can't, you can't get to them and then suddenly, poof, you hit the expiration date, it's gone. It turns from solid to, to vapor and it, it, it just wisps away. It's just crazy, right? Students with disabilities are separated from protections under IDEA, the Individuals with Disability Education Act, which would include the IEP team considering services and placements. Okay, so you are denying that student their right to due process under IDEA when you are implementing the abeyance agreement and then stopping right there and not having a manifestation determination meeting for the student or convening the IP team to consider services or consider placement. It seems you'd want to inform the IP team if something sentinel significant enough has happened with the student where you're considering suspension or expulsion. So this is, this is if you're a parent of a student with a disability, um, I would caution you to not, not jump into an abeyance agreement to say, I need time, talk with your disability rights folks in the state. You can, can find them pretty, pretty easily, you know, by doing a search and run this by them and um, be fully informed that you don't want to sign something and then not have this IP team convened when the IP team might uh, benefit the student from additional or different services or additional or different placements. The default premise of an abeyance agreement, again, is that it does not create a permanent piece of data for the district. It doesn't create something that's on the student's file, stays with the student. This is very damaging if you are looking long-term uh, also for, let's say one student. You, you don't have this information to possibly identify a skill deficit, a pattern of behavior. If you look at multiple abeyance agreements, maybe there's some institutional bias that's happening. All of those are gone because these documents just don't stick around. So people listening to this who champion abeyance agreements and saying, this is the best thing ever. 
Okay, but all of the points that I just made are accurate. I have lived all of these points in 100 plus abeyance agreements, in thousands, literally thousands of IEP meetings and, and manifestations. And, and what I'm saying is accurate. If you have ways that this is applied, you apply this in your district, in, in your setting, where you, you know, believe it enhances the education to the student, it's great. We have a, I leave the comments open, post. I'd love to hear about it. But I want people to be very aware that abeyance agreements have severe shortcomings and are not necessarily in the best interests of students, of staff, of parents. I am Dr. David Proden. Thank you for listening to the Safety Doc Podcast. Also, thank you to John Grant and the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California, for airing the Safety Doc Podcast. Stay safe, everybody. None of us are safe right now. We are sworn at and called vile, crude, and sexual names every day. I have a list here of horrifying things that were said to your employees and your students in just the last two days. It fills a page. I struggled with whether or not to read this list to you. In order for you to grasp the abuse we are experiencing, I wanted you to feel how we feel when these things are said to us. However, I couldn't bring myself to say them out loud because they are so disgusting. Ultimately, you have to know that these things are said to your employees and your children all day, every day. This constant verbal abuse takes a toll on our bodies and minds. It's devastating that I can't bring myself to say things out loud that I have to listen to day in and day out at my workplace. In addition to verbal abuse, the people at Washington are getting injured more than ever. I thought it would take someone getting seriously injured before necessary changes would happen. But then, just a couple weeks ago, a teacher was taken away in an ambulance with a bleeding head wound caused by a fight among three students. Another teacher was physically attacked by students trying to set off a deadly allergic reaction on purpose, causing her throat to close and her to struggle to breathe. A student was held down on a table and his legs put into vice grips so that other students could take his shoes. A student had his pants and underwear pulled down, exposing him in a crowded hallway of students. Another student approached a group of teachers and pulled his pants down and touched himself inappropriately while laughing at their request to stop. Male and female students this year are slapped on the buttocks, pitched in the chest, kicked in the groin. Just last week, two students laid on a table in the classroom and kissed each other heavily and pretended to have sex while a substitute teacher tried to get them to stop. All of those things I just mentioned happened in the month of May.
This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.